0: We have a very specific problem. And it's a problem that can be captured in one sentence. This is the sentence. The people of God throughout the ages have had to learn to wait. The people of God throughout the ages have had to learn to wait. And that's a problem because I don't like to wait and I'm not alone in fact thinking about it this week I cannot remember one single person in my life who has said to me Randy I really enjoy waiting not one it's not like I can remember five or ten I can't remember one single person who likes to wait even if they have followed Jesus for a very long time we just don't like to wait I can remember back in college that we college students didn't like to wait. There was a, maybe it was a campus legend, I don't know, but there was supposedly a rule that said, if the teacher was 10 minutes late to class, you could leave and not get counted absent even if the teacher did show up. So I can remember watching that clock, come come on, come on, come on, and then the teacher walks in eight minutes after and is like, oh, waited all that time and didn't get what I wanted. We don't like to wait. In fact, speaking of that, have you noticed, as my good friend Jerry Winslow says, that school is about the only thing we can think of where when you get less for your money, you're delighted. If you bought a ticket from from Ontario back to New York City and the pilot came on at the beginning of the flight and said, folks, we've decided we're just going to Kansas City. We're not going any further. These days, you'd have a riot on your hands. But if you're the teacher and you say, tomorrow there's no class, everybody's like, yes. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> it's a very strange thing. But I digress. We don't like to wait. In fact, go back to that airport. Let's say we're flying back from the East Coast, back to SoCal, where they're waiting, and then the dreaded announcement comes. We're sorry, folks, the flight is going to be somewhat delayed We're having some problems with getting all of the flight crew here. We'll be back to you in a few moments. And you think, oh, great. And you start watching your clock and thinking, here we go. And announcement after announcement, finally, you've waited three hours before you board, and everybody is fuming mad. People are saying, I'm going to miss my connection. It's messed up my meeting schedule. We get to Dallas. We do miss our connection. Three more hours of waiting. We get home six hours late, miss the late afternoon meeting, miss the dinner that evening. The airline offered no compensation, didn't even give us a meal voucher, and we're all mad. We had to wait six hours. Never mind the simple fact that had you taken that same trip maybe 200 years ago, it would have taken you months several people would have died on the journey by the time you got there you would have been a different person but today I'm angry because I had to wait six hours we don't like to wait there are people who study these things this week I was reading about different studies that were made like like have you pulled up behind a car that looks like it's about to pull out of the parking space at the mall don't sit there too long If they see you there, the time it takes them to exit increases. And heaven help the driver that honks. It goes up by another third. We don't like to be rushed, apparently, as much as we don't like to wait. Or what about the supermarket? You've stood there with your card, haven't you? And you've looked at each of those lines. You said, okay, express, express, not express. Okay, how many people in this one? How's that checker look? They look like they have an agile set of fingers? And you're trying to figure out which one to get in. Now, what they study and say is this. Once you get in line, you are more irritated by the lines that go faster than you than you are pleased when your line goes faster because you think, I could have been in that line. I wouldn't have had to wait as long. We just don't like to wait. Not even the followers of Jesus. And that's a problem. Because throughout time, the people of God have had to learn to wait. A Christian psychologist by the name of Kim Hall quite some years ago now was interviewed, and here's what she said in her interview. People seem to believe that they have an inalienable right to be happy. I want what I want, and I want it now. No one wants to wait for anything, and for the most part, no one has to wait anymore. Waiting is interpreted as pain. People walk into my office and say they're Christians, but I see no difference except that they want to be happy now and expect God to make it so. The problem is that in this country, you can have what you want when you want it most of the time. People like the fact that they can buy a 50-foot tree and instantly plant it in their yard. Why in the world would anyone on earth wait for relationships or wait on God? You can have a lawn with no tree in it today, and tomorrow there's a 50-foot tree. Why should I have to wait? But the people of God, over time, have had to learn to wait. Consider some of God's all-stars. Abraham. Abraham waited and waited and waited. God said, you're going to have a son. You're going to have an heir. And from that heir, you're going to have so many generations. You won't even believe it, Abraham. Okay, when? Well, it'll come. Abraham begins to notice flecks of gray in his beard. And so he says to God, God, you know, I got this servant. He's an awfully good man. We could adopt him. He could be. God, no, 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 not through him, Abraham, through you. Abraham looks out and sees Sarah, flecks of gray in her hair, and he says, God, I I don't know about this. Sarah comes to him and says, here, take my maid. Raise the child. We'll treat it as our own. That was a mistake. See the Arab-Israeli conflict for evidence. Abraham gets to looking a little longer out the tent flap. He sees Sarah go by on the walker, and he says, God, this is ridiculous. I've waited and waited. What are you doing? Abraham waited. Moses. Moses waited. I mean, God says, Moses, I want you to deliver the children from Egypt. Take them to Canaan. Moses says, Okay. After some arguing, he says, Okay. He goes in, offs an Egyptian, realizes his life is in danger, flees to the desert, and says, now what? And God says, follow those sheep around the desert. For how long? I'll get back to you. One decade, two decades, three decades, four. And Moses says, this is incredible. Waiting. Moses learned to wait. What about Elijah? Elijah was a man of action, burst onto the center stage of Israel's history. History. Blood and guts, prophet Elijah. Show and tell Prophet Elijah. Hide and seek Prophet Elijah. Sit by the vanishing creek, Elijah. Elijah learned to wait. And then there's Jesus. Jesus waited came to save the planet and for 30 years we know almost nothing about him almost nothing about what he did what did you do in all that time Jesus 30 years if you're going to save the world save the world but he's in a carpenter shop what did he do we don't know really there are some traditions some very old traditions One tradition, for example, says that Jesus made, he crafted the best ox yokes for oxen in all of Palestine. Another ancient tradition says that he hung a sign above his shop that said, my yokes fit well. Well, they still do. But Jesus, ox yokes, you're here to save the planet. And... He waited. The people of God have learned to wait. And that's not real good news for those of us who live in the 21st century in the instant world. When everything can be delivered here, now, I want it, and I want it when I want it. And when I want it is now. And yet we've had to learn to wait. And then we come to Zechariah. Zechariah, who prays the third prayer of Advent, we come to Zechariah's prayer, the Benedictus. Zechariah's prayer has to do with waiting and fulfillment. His prayer appears in Luke chapter 1, but some context is in order. There in, in, in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's prayer appears after he has been in the temple. After he has seen and heard from the angel, the angel that has said you're going to have a child, you and Elizabeth, the aging couple are going to have a child. Zachariah disbelieves it and is struck mute, cannot speak for the nine months. And it's as though during that nine month period, this message these words build and grow within him. Eugene Peterson says at the end of the nine months, they finally burst forth from him. This prayer we call the Benedictus. It's a remarkable prayer. When we read it in just a moment, I want you to notice the tone of exhilaration that appears in the prayer. God has acted. God is moving. God is finally fulfilling His word after all of this time of waiting. Not years, not decades, not centuries, millennia of waiting. And now God has acted. In fact, from Adam's sin to Malachi's pen, the entire story of the Old Testament has been a story of waiting, of yearning, of longing, of praying. When will you act, God? And Zechariah, along with his people, waited until the Benedictus. Until the moment, eight days after the child was born, the time for the circumcision, the time for the naming of the child. The family gathered around, and said, Well, obviously his name will be Zachariah. His mother said, No, 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 no. His name is John. They say, You don't have anybody in your family by that name. So ask the father, the mute father, who takes a pen and inscribes on the pad, his name is John. And at that moment, his tongue is loosed. And he begins to pray. Begins to sing. The Benedictus. Luke 1. Is where we find it. Luke 1, beginning in verse 67, says the following. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, The first part speaks to what Zechariah understands will be the role of his people, his people Israel. As we read it, we recognize that there is in his mind the idea of of national salvation, a political kingdom. But if you're fair to Zechariah as you read the Benedictus, that's not the only thing on his mind. It's a deeply spiritual prayer. He uses terms like mercy and peace and righteousness and holiness. There's something much more deeply spiritual than mere political salvation. The second part of the prayer is about the child. This eight-day-old boy This child about whom Zacharias says such grand things, you will guide the Messiah. You will prepare the way. You will lead into the coming kingdom of God. He's been waiting for a very long time, all of his life, and much of the life of his people. You know what it is to wait. You're waiting on something this morning. Someone here is waiting and has been praying for a very long time. I I don't know what you're waiting for. I'm not certain what you're praying for. Could be that you're praying for a life partner. When you started praying back then, you prayed for somebody tall, dark, and handsome. Now you're praying for, for somebody short, any color, and breathing. But you're still praying. Still praying, God, please, hear that prayer. After all, you said it right here. You said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the woman to be alone. So, God, I'm asking you, on your word, please answer. And here you sit, waiting. Maybe you're praying for a job. God, I went to school. Now I'm out. Now I'm looking for work. And I'm seeing what little savings I had continuing to dwindle. You've got to move. You've got to act. You've got to provide something for me. Your word says it. Paul, writing to the Philippian friends of his, said, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God, I'm asking. Well, or maybe it's something much more deep for healing. For that grim diagnosis. God, when you came in fleshed, incarnated, the touch of your hand in response to faith healed people. Why not do it now? Or if you would prefer, in a different day and time, then use the physicians, use the medical team, use the scientists who do so much for us. Use them, but God, heal me. And today, You wait. The people of God have always waited. They haven't always been at peace with waiting. Please understand that. Just turn to the book of Psalms and peruse the Psalms. Peruse what the Psalm has said to God. That book that contains the entire spectrum of human experience where every emotion is on display, where people don't hold back from God. They tell God exactly what's in their heart. They cry out, how long, O Lord? Will you sit silent in heaven forever? How long? Hear our prayer. Answer us, God. How long? As they waited. But it's just not the Old Testament. Turn to the New. In fact, go to the very last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation, and see that symbolic scene of the souls beneath the altar, the souls that have suffered profoundly, have been martyred for Jesus. What is it that they pray under the altar? Under the altar they're saying, how long, O Lord? How long? Before you vindicate us, how long? We've been waiting a very long time. Well, Zechariah gets to think about that, but to pray about fulfillment. Because as we read through the Benedictus, we noticed that tone of exhilaration of praise. Praise be to God because God has acted. God has moved. God has fulfilled. God has brought his promise to completion. This child is a symbol of the one to come, will lead the one to come. God has acted. That's his joy. Fulfillment. Don't you yearn to pray that prayer? The prayer of fulfillment, the prayer of answer, the prayer of completion. It strikes me that these prayers, these five prayers of Advent, can be summarized quite succinctly. You remember the first prayer, the fiat mihi. That's the prayer that Mary prayed in answer to God's will you. It can be summarized with one word, and that word is yes, yes. The second prayer, the Magnificat, as Mary takes in the realities that she, this humble servant, this humble handmaiden, will actually be the one to fulfill the prophecy. She's staggered by that, and she prays the Magnificat, which can be summarized in one word, and that word is, me? Me? Seriously? And today, the Benedictus. Zachariah's prayer of praise is prayer of fulfillment. Maybe it could be summarized in three words. It is happening. Maybe three. Or maybe two words. It's coming. But I think the best way to summarize Zacharias Benedictus is in one word. One word. And that word is finally. Finally, finally, God, you have acted, you have moved, you have fulfilled your word, you have completed your promise. Finally, it has taken place. Don't you yearn to pray that prayer? To pray that prayer in your life? To pray that prayer for whatever facet of your life you today are waiting that for which you have yearned and longed and prayed, don't you yearn for the day when you kneel and you say just one word, finally. Praise you, God. Thank you. It doesn't happen often enough. It will, but it doesn't happen enough now. Now, in the spirit of the Christmas season, and in the spirit of families gathering together to enjoy one another's company, to eat the good food, to share the gifts, and even to listen to and tell the stories. Let me read you a story. Story of Christmas, a story of long waiting, and yet a story of fulfillment. It's a story that honestly seems to not be true, but is written by Howard Schotting. It was picked up by my college English professor, Joe Wheeler. Dr. Wheeler picked it up and included it in one of his books, Christmas in My Heart. It's a story called The Gold and Ivory Tablecloth. It's introduced by saying of all the good stories of Christmas, Few are treasured and reread as much as this one. So, here's the story. At Christmas time, men and women everywhere gather in their churches to wonder anew at the greatest miracle the world has ever known. But the story I like best to recall was not a miracle, not exactly. It happened to a pastor who was very young. His church was very old. Once, long ago, it had flourished. Famous men had preached from its pulpit, prayed before its altar. Rich and poor alike had worshipped there and built it beautifully. But now the good days had passed from the section of town where it stood. But the pastor and his young wife believed in their rundown church. They felt that with paint, hammer, and faith, they could get it in shape. So together... They went to work. But in late December, a severe storm whipped through the river valley, and the worst blow fell on the little church. A huge chunk of rain-soaked plaster fell out of the inside wall just behind the altar. Sorrowfully, the pastor and his wife swept away the mess. But they couldn't hide the ragged hole. The pastor looked at it and had to remind himself to pray, Thy will be done. But his wife wept. Christmas is only two days away. That afternoon, the dispirited couple attended the auction held for the benefit of a youth group. The auctioneer opened a box and shook out of its folds a handsome gold and ivory lace tablecloth. It was a magnificent item, nearly 15 feet long, but it too dated from a long-vanished era. Who today had any use for such a thing? There were a few half-hearted bids. Then the pastor was seized with what he thought was a great idea. He bid it and bought it for $6.50. He carried the cloth back to the church and tacked it up on the wall behind the altar. It completely hid the hole. And the extraordinary beauty of its shimmering handiwork cast a fine holiday glow over the chancel. It was a great triumph. Happily, he went back to preparing his Christmas sermon. Just before noon on the day of Christmas Eve, as the pastor was opening the church, he noticed a woman standing in the cold at the bus stop. The bus won't be here for 40 minutes, he called and invited her into the church to get warm. She told him that she had come from the city that morning to be interviewed for a job as a governess to the children of one of the wealthy families in town, but that she had been turned down. She was a war refugee, World War II, and her English was imperfect. The woman sat down in a pew and rubbed her hands to keep warm and rested. After a while, she dropped her head and prayed. She looked up as the pastor began to adjust the great gold and ivory lace cloth across the hole. She rose suddenly and walked up the steps to the chancel. She looked at the tablecloth. The pastor smiled and started to tell her about the storm, but she didn't seem to listen. She took up a fold of the cloth and rubbed it between her fingers. It's mine, she said. It's my banquet cloth. She lifted up a corner and showed the surprised pastor that there were initials monogrammed on it. My husband had the cloth made for me, especially in Brussels. There couldn't be another one like it. For the next few minutes, the woman and the pastor talked excitedly together. She explained that she was Viennese, that she and her husband had opposed the Nazis. And the danger that loomed Caused them to decide to leave the country. They were advised to go separately. Her husband put her on a train for Switzerland. They planned that he would join her as soon as he could arrange to ship their household goods across the border. She never saw him again. Later, she heard that he had died in a concentration camp. I've always felt that it was my fault to leave without him, she said. Perhaps these years of wondering, these years of waiting have been my punishment. The pastor tried to comfort her, urged her to take the cloth with her, but she refused and then she went away. As the church began to fill on Christmas Eve, it was clear that the cloth was going to be a great success. It had been skillfully designed to look its best by candlelight. After the service, the pastor stood at the doorway. Many people told him that the church looked absolutely beautiful. One gentle-faced, middle-aged man, he was the local clock and watch repairman, looked rather puzzled. It is strange, he said in his soft accent. Many years ago, my wife, God rest her. My wife and I own such a cloth. In our home in Vienna, my wife put it on the table, and here he smiled, but only when the bishop came to eat. The pastor suddenly became very excited. He told the jeweler about the woman who had been in church earlier that day. The startled jeweler clutched the pastor's arm Can it be? Is it her? Does she yet live? Together, the two got in touch with the family who had interviewed her. Then in the pastor's car, they started for the city. And as Christmas Day was born, this man and his wife, who had been separated through so many saddened yuletides, were reunited. Their long separation, their agonizing wait, Had ended. I read that story and reread it, trying to decide whether or not I liked it. I liked it. It had a good ending. I didn't like it because we wait. I don't know. I don't know, for example, what sorrow pervades your soul this morning. I do know that that sorrow is more intense at Christmas. I don't know for what you wait. I do know the people of God throughout the ages have waited. I don't know when that for which you wait will come. Only God knows that. But the Benedictus reminds us it will come. Though you wait long, it will be fulfilled. So maybe. Maybe it's a good story. Because it reminds us that every Christmas, every Advent season, is one further reminder that the Benedictus is true. God will fulfill His Word. I don't know that for which you wait or how long it will take, or the sorrow in your soul. But I do know that around the throne of God, we will pray a prayer. The third prayer of Advent, the Benedictus, the most pregnant prayer one could pray, and it's just one word long finally. Gracious God, may we pray that prayer soon. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.